trying to always be uh, responsive to uh, criticism, correction, suggestions. Um, the last few weeks since I got the, 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 the gentle criticism that I wasn't giving enough of the how-to. Painting a large picture without a way to get there can be kind of frustrating. I understand that. And although the effect is all about contemplative spirituality, which is our how-to, I want to make sure that that gets across in the messages as much as possible. I've been talking about presence for the last few weeks. More and more older I get, the more I realize that presence is everything. It is, it is the, I want to say, sine qua non, the without which none. You know, it is the, 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 the ticket in the door. Everything builds, everything flows from presence. We talked last week about how presence can be broken down and understood a little bit more thoroughly as presence plus awareness plus focus. And so we'll talk a little bit more about that today. But I wanted to get into more of how do we do this? What does it look like? That's always kind of my way of trying to understand how we do something. What does it look like when it is done so that we can then follow after is something that's always really important to me. Last week I had mentioned a story that someone had emailed it to me about, and this is a, a man from uh, Berlin who has found us online. You know, uh, Frank was talking about our online community, which has grown. There's about uh, 10 or so people who now call the effect home from other states, and there's one guy from Berlin who found us who's been logging in a little less regularly, but then again, it's 2.30 his time in the morning when he's logging on, so it's a little understandable. But he sent a, a story about a group of, of young people that he saw either coming out of a church or coming by a church, and they were so exuberant that they caught his attention. They seemed so alive and so enthusiastic and, and just really connected with each other, and it, it just noted in his mind when he saw them go by. And then later on in the day, as he was going to the subway, he saw them again also entering the subway with the same level of exuberance and excitement and connection for each other, and walked right by a man who was laying on the, on the pavement near the subway entrance in the hot sun and without even a glance. And his take was, we were talking about presence, you know, that they weren't present enough to see that man and walked right on by. So I mentioned that last week, and then I got an email this week from, some, from another person who's in Vermont, actually, and he was saying, you know, and he didn't put it this way, but he's feeling a little judged by that story because he said, I often pass homeless people, but I don't know what to do about them, you know? Is one little thing that I do going to make any difference in their, in their situation or in their life? Is it going to make it worse? He says, I don't know what to do. And he felt that the story was kind of shaming him because he has also walked by. And I thought, you know, that's a really good point. And sometimes when, when I'll tell a story or, or, or give an illustration that in my mind is illustrating one thing, it's also illustrating a bunch of other things that I had not intended. And, and so I wanted to, to just bring that up and say, presence is the ticket in the door. Those kids had presence and awareness for each other, but their bubble was closed. They didn't see anything else beyond that bubble. They only had eyes for each other. And so they were able to walk by without even seeing what was going on. My friend who was emailing me, he sees them. It's not that they're outside of his, his awareness bubble. But he's making a decision about what he can and can't do. Now, I connected it last week to the Good Samaritan, but that's a different situation, isn't it? I mean, how many of us, if we saw a person bleeding 
and obviously beaten on the side of the road, wouldn't at least call 911. We would do something, right? But when we see someone in a, in a long-term state, well, that goes into a different decision-making process. But the point was that they didn't even see the man. They were only inside their own bubble. What Jesus is all about is getting us to expand the bubble of our awareness so that eventually everyone is inside that bubble with us, even and especially the enemy, the stranger, the one that we don't have any affinity for. But if they're not in our bubble, we can't even decide what is the thing that love would dictate or require us to do. And sometimes the best thing we can do is nothing, or the only thing we can do is nothing. But to be aware of them is everything. And that's the difference. That's what I'm trying to get across here. Jesus wants us to open up, to have our awareness open up, to see the common humanity between us and everyone that we encounter on our way, regardless of station, regardless of who they are. Now, what love prompts us to do in that moment is going to be dictated by that moment and those circumstances. And that's all up to us. But without awareness, the whole process never begins. What we do with the information is ours, but we need the information. We talked about presence that doesn't necessarily have to include awareness, and awareness doesn't necessarily have to include focus. But we wanted to break that down because presence is undistracted here nowness, is the way I put it last week. Now, your dog has that, your puppy has that completely undistracted here nowness, can't even conceive of yesterday or tomorrow or anything else outside of whether you've got a treat for him or her or not. That's it. That's the extent of it, right? And small children are the same way. But when we, as, as human beings, eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what are we doing? We're adding awareness to the presence, right? Now we can conceive of things that were past and future and abstract and apart from what is happening right now. That's why the Lord said, on that day, you will surely die when you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You're going to die to this perfect presence that you have right now when you don't even know that you're naked, right? That's what died. And the human experience began. Now, when we are with another person, though, we can add focus to the awareness. The awareness doesn't need to be focused. In fact, in meditation, in centering prayer, what we're trying to do is become completely, have our awareness be completely choiceless. We're not choosing to focus on anything because we just want to be in that space with the presence of God. But here, the focus needs to be only on the task at hand, only on the thing that we're doing. That we can call mindfulness, if you wish. Presence plus awareness is contemplative. Plus, presence plus awareness plus focus is mindful, and it allows us to move through our day thinking only about the thing that we're trying to do at the moment. Now, how do we do that? How do we set up our lives in such a way that our very lifestyle is living this contemplative spirituality? And Jesus was contemplative. And when you read the New Testament, when you read the Gospels with this in mind, you see Jesus practicing these principles, and we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go. How do we do it? What is this daily practice of presence? How do we actually immerse ourselves in such a way that the practice of presence is moving through our lives and taking us someplace we really want to go? Now, I can see four places that we need to immerse 
in this, in this present way that is going to be presenting to us all throughout our lives. We need to immerse in God. We need to immerse in each other. We need to immerse in our culture, and we need to immerse in everything that we do. So it's, it's nature, it's culture, it's each other, and it's God. In those four areas... If we can immerse ourselves and understand what it means to immerse ourselves in those areas, I think we can then start to move along a path that's going to take us where Jesus is taking us because he immersed in all those four areas as well. God, other, nature, and the culture itself. So let's just, let's just begin. How do we immerse in God? How do we practice presence with God? And this is what we've talked about so often. We talked about meditation. We've talked about centering prayer as techniques. The worship music we just played is another way, another technique, a way to be able to step aside from the thoughts and the constant action and, and you know, judging and distinctions made by our waking mind, to step away from all of that noise and just be. Jesus did this regularly. He practiced this regularly. Take a look at Luke 5, starting at verse 15. But the news about Jesus was spreading even farther. A chance for non-presence right there (laughs) as the phone rings. The news about Jesus was spreading even farther, and large crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. Jesus would often slip away to the wilderness. And that word wilderness, literally, it means lonesome. It means desolate. It means waste. It can mean a lot of things. But what is trying to get across here is Jesus went to a solitary place. Jesus went to a place outside of the city, outside of the confines of people, to get out into nature, whether it was the desert and a desolate place or not, it was a solitary place. You know, one, one of the translations says, Jesus often slipped away to a lonely place to pray. But he was doing this on a regular basis. Over and over and over again, if you read the scriptures, you will see Jesus slipping off to pray. And when does it usually happen? Right here, like this, when he has been stretched to the limit, when he has been pouring out so profusely to others in his service that he needed to go and recharge. Maybe Jesus was an introvert. Yeah, had to recharge alone. I like that thought. But whatever, he went to be alone. He went to clear all of that stuff out. All the busyness, all the noise, all the thought processes. And then what does he do when he teaches us how to pray at Matthew 6, right? Starting at verse 6. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room. And that means both physically and spiritually, the inner room. Typical Jewish houses had a place that you could go. Either it was the roof, which was living space in in ancient Jewish homes. You could go to the roof and you could be alone. Or there was actually a a room that was solitary and off, just a small room, like a closet. That's where we get the, the term prayer closet, right? It's that room. So when you pray, go to your inner room. That room, so that you can be away from the noise and the hustle and bustle of life in the home, but also your inner, inner room. Go to that room as well. Clear out that space for something to happen interior. Close your door and pray to your Father who is in secret. 
and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This prayer we're talking about is not word-based. This prayer is, is silent, and it's still, and it's solitude. That's where Jesus would go out into the wilderness on a regular basis. That's how he is teaching prayer. Presence plus choiceless awareness. Awareness of everything that's going on. Choosing not to focus on any one thing. And when we realize that we are starting to focus on one thing, when the laundry list has come back in or, or triggered emotionally, that we step aside using whatever technique that we have used. If it's for you to sing a worship song to yourself until everything subsides again, to say your sacred word if you're in centering prayer, to follow the breath, whatever your technique is, to come back to center, to let everything go, to move back into that silence and that stillness. With no focus, and here's the most important thing, no thought of outcome. Why did Jesus teach this way at this particular time? Because he's contrasting it with the way that the Pharisees prayed. The Pharisees would make sure that they made a big show. Why? Because they were thinking about the outcome of the prayer. If I pray in this way and everybody sees how righteous I am, then I get another higher seat at the table. I get higher distribution of donations or whatever. They were using the prayer and they're using their practice to feather their nest to self-aggrandize, to move themselves up the social ladder. Jesus says you can't have any of those thoughts of outcome. If you're going to pray in this way, your Father already knows all the things you need. Just come and present yourself. Reconnect. Everything starts when we reconnect. The prayer really is its own reward in that sense. But at the same time, it's also practicing the technique of this coming back to center, coming back to the quiet place. And different people are going to have different techniques that work for them. That's why so often, when I'm, and every time when I'm working with someone individually especially, try all these different techniques. Here's a whole smorgasbord of ways that you can work on contemplative prayer and contemplative spirituality. See what starts to work for you. If you're a little bit too ADD, well, sitting completely still for 20 minutes ain't going to work for you so well. So how about a walking meditation? How about something else? There are different ways. And when you find something that works, that's what you can then use to take on the road. It's like a musician practicing in a practice room. Not just so he or she can master scales up and down by themselves in the practice room, but so that they can take it on the road. And all of that is under their muscle memory, at their command when it is needed, when the pressure is on, when the fans are screaming and the smoke machine is on. That's it. We are practicing in our inner room to be able to take our ability to stay centered, to stay still, to stay in awareness of God's presence throughout the day. When we add focus to the mix, focusing on the one thing, but still aware of God's presence at the same time, infusing life with the kind of meaning and purpose that it doesn't have otherwise. This is all about immersing ourselves in God. How do we immerse ourselves in each other now? How does that work? Here's presence plus awareness, but adding focus. The awareness is no longer choiceless. The awareness is going to be focused on something. Right now, hopefully it's focused on me, right? 
I don't know how much it is, but that would be nice. And I'm focused on you, right? And when you go to work, you're focused on the task at hand, whatever it happens to be. And when you go to coffee with someone, you're looking right into their eyes and you're focused on that conversation to the exclusion of everything else. Because that person will know the instant you check out, don't they? Even on the phone, people know the instant that you check out. Your voice has a different tonality to it as soon as you're distracted and doing something else. And you know it as well. And it's not a great feeling when you realize you're not the center of the universe for them anymore. And so you bring it back. Okay, so if we're going to focus and and immerse in each other, we're going to add focus to this mix here. We're going to see each other as fellow human beings, broken human beings, which helps, right? We're all broken. And we're going to see the oneness. We're actually going to let the other person pass our firewall. You know that term from computers, right? We're going to let people pass our firewall. Actually, this is a firewall right here. This is super thick, and I, don't, I think it's, it's got concrete. Anyway, yeah, it, it's a firewall. We're going to let people pass our firewall. We're going to let them inside our bubble. We're going to see them and see their needs and see what they're about in a way that we can't if they're still bouncing off our force field, if, if, our, our, if our awareness is, is too narrow. But we're going to let them in. We're really going to see each other. We're going to see their pain. We're going to see their needs. And we're going to be moved to respond in whatever way that we do, which may be that we don't actually do something. But here's the key. Our response to the people in our path, when we have let them into our bubble, is not going to be about law and about duty. We're not checking boxes here. We're not doing good deeds because it'll have some outcome in this life or the next life. As soon as we do that, we're not present anymore. We're present to our needs. We're present to the outcome that we're looking forward to. It has nothing to do with that. When we are fully present to another person, someone who's in our path, then what love directs at that moment is what we can do. And our presence will direct that moment for us. If we're really seeing the other person, just like Jesus says, when you go to prayer, your father already knows what you need before you ask him. Really, all you got to do is show up. If we are really present to another person and listening to them, then we are going to know what they need, what they're all about. And then we can react in whatever way love would direct. But we've got to be really seeing them first. And willing to break the rules, willing to break the code of the law if necessary to be able to deliver what love really directs. We always often, you know, we use that little benchmark, is lying always wrong? It's just an easy kind of a shortcut for us. And most people will say lying is not always wrong. It's always unlawful, but it's not always wrong. Sometimes love dictates that the lie is the better thing to do when it's preserving life, when it's preserving relationship. Are we willing to break the rules? Are we willing to be that present, to bring our whole selves into a moment and see what love requires? It takes a heck of a lot more energy than just bringing the rule book into a moment. Uh, Let me check. That's on page 72. That's what I do. That's easy. That we can do all day. The energy that it takes to be fully present actively listening to another person, that's something that's more difficult. But Jesus is doing it constantly. In John 11, the, practically the whole chapter, 
It's about Jesus raising Lazarus and, and the story leading up to it and after it. I'm not going to read it. Uh, you can put it on if you want to, Brendan, Brenda, but, but just you know, know that it's there if you want to go back and take a look. But the story is that Jesus is across the Jordan. He's in the Transjordan area, and he is ministering there. And the word comes to him from his friends, his, some of his closest friends, Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha, in Bethany, just a couple of miles from Jerusalem on the other side of the river, that Lazarus is really sick. He's sick unto death. Please come, please come. And what does Jesus do? He stays two more days where he's at. And by that time, Lazarus is dead. Why does he stay two more days? You know, you can say there's a lot of reasons. And the text suggests that he wanted him to die so that he could perform the miracle that would allow the others to believe. And that is layered in there. But I think what's really important is to understand that Jesus was always most present to the person he was with. Sometimes I'll ask the trick question when I'm counseling someone one-on-one. Who is the most important person in your life right now? And they'll give me the laundry list of who it is. Who's the most important person in your life right now? What I'm trying to do is to get them to say, I am the most important person in their life right now, sitting in this room alone with the door closed. But as soon as we open up that door, then it's the next person that is right in front of you and the person after that. And when you get home, then it's your wife and your children and whomever. But the most important person in your life right now should be the one that is right in front of you. And that's the way Jesus operates. Could you imagine being in the presence of absolute presence? What does that look like? What is the intensity in the eyes? I always think about my friend Lou. When I was with Lou, I felt like I was the only person in the room. Even if we were across the room and just got eye contact, he had a way of making me feel that special because he was that present. Imagine being in Jesus' presence and have that intensity turned on you. Wow. He stayed two more days because he was needed there two more days. He was focused on the people that he was with. But when he gets back to Bethany and Martha runs out to meet him on the road, he has a conversation with her. And her first line is, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And they have an intellectual, theological conversation about the resurrection at the end of all time and all this, because that's Martha. You know the story of Mary and Martha. Martha's the one who does all the stuff that needs to be done. She's the OCD one who's getting everything ready. And and Mary is the one who's just sitting at Jesus' feet. We know the personalities of these two women. He has the conversation with Martha. Her brother has just died, but it's intellectual and it's theological. And when she goes away and brings her sister, what does Jesus do with her? He weeps with Mary. A different reaction about the same stimulus to different people as needed. Jesus is that present. He delivers what love is requiring at the moment. If it's just a shoulder and to weep along, yeah, do that, and you don't say a word. If it's with someone else, it's something else. That's the kind of energy, that's the kind of immersion that presence with another really looks like. Have you ever gone through periods in your life where you don't really have any clear memories? (laughs) My whole 20s are like that. You know, I can tell you what I did in my 20s, and I can remember specific things, but it's almost as if I read it in a book. I was so not present at that time in my life. Now I have some really clear memories. 
We need to live life that we're really imprinting in the noggin what is happening right in front of us, and we can't do that if we're not there. If all that focus, that intensity is not there, and if you think of the clearest memories that you have, the ones that you can close your eyes and you can see and smell, I guarantee you, you were so present at that moment, nothing else was in your awareness at that time. That's the kind of presence for each other. Presence plus awareness plus focus will give us those kinds of memories. I remember seeing a movie where the, a, a guy is just staring at, at this woman, you know, and, and she's talking away, and all of a sudden she looks at him and says, what? What? <laughs> you know, why are you looking at me that way? He says, I'm memorizing your face. That's it. Every line, every detail, the way the light hits it, can we be that present to each other? And how about nature? How do we immerse in nature? To be aware of and taking time to see the goodness that is still in nature. This has been a difficult year. We all know that. That's an understatement. And it just gets weirder and weirder by the week, doesn't it? Once you think it's over, there can't be anything weird that's going to happen, and then something else happens. But you know what? Those palm trees have not changed one bit from 2020 to 2019, and I bet you in 2021 they're going to look just as beautiful. To sit out here and look across those red tile roofs, past the palm trees to the hills beyond, when the sun is shining through those broken clouds and the breeze is coming off the ocean, how does it get any better than that? Nothing has changed about God's earth, the, the nature that he crowns us with every single day. Do we see it? Do we take time to see it? Do we let it move us into that place of gratitude and a sense of well-being? Or do we stay inside our head and worry about what's happening 3,000 miles away? We can make that choice if we want to. It's completely up to us. But to infuse the beauty of God's creation into our moments and to realize that God's unseen hand is there in those moments with us every step of the way or this world could not look the way that it does and provide the things that it does for us is God's hand in it. Can we see that? I love talking about the Warsaw Ghetto because even though it was one of the most ugly and atrocious times and places on this earth, it also gave birth to some of the greatest feats of human spirituality. And Rabbi Shapira, who was one of the leaders of the Jews who were caught up in that hell, often used images of nature in his meditations for the synagogue that he ran and for the young men that he was teaching. Even though there was no signs of nature in the little quadrant of Warsaw in which they were incarcerated, it was blighted. It was just stone and brick. There was nothing there of beauty. Yet he would remind everybody of the trees and the pastures and everything that they had no longer seen to let them move back into their mind's eye into a place of gratitude of everything that God showers upon us every single moment. He was able to still see the beauty in the rubble. Can we do that? We are living in one of the most gorgeous places on earth. We're living in Disneyland, for crying out loud. And yet we can live such miserable lives because we're not looking out there. We're not keeping our head where our feet are to see what is actually present to us. 
Jesus says at Matthew 6, I love this passage, look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They don't toil, they don't spin. And yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You have little faith. And it's not about the faith here so much. It's about can we still be present to what's there? And look at the imagery that Jesus uses the birds and the flowers and the grass of the fields. Now, of course, yeah, in an agrarian society 2,000 years ago, they were immersed in nature. It was a lot easier for them to get their toes in the dirt than we do. When was the last time you had toes in the dirt? You know, usually we're walking around on completely insulated soil, you know, shoes, right? Moving from one air-conditioned container to another. But even so, the nature is all around us. And not just these images, but Jesus is constantly talking about planters, planting and fishing, all bringing up the imagery of nature and the dependence and the interdependence on us with nature and the whole turning of this ball in space. I often try to get people to take sensory walks, especially if they're a little ADD and sitting still is not working. You take a walk. Just take a walk. But as you're walking, try not to name anything that you see. Do you know how hard that is to do? Just walk. Take a walk. What's your mind doing? Okay, that's a tree. I think it's a eucalyptus. I wonder if, if it sheds its leaves in the winter and you're going off into all the... Don't name anything. It's just a green thing that stands out beautifully against that blue sky and the light's hitting at this angle. You're not thinking anything. You're just noticing. Just see it. See the way that it moves. See the way that it smells. Just be there. Be in that place. But try not to lock it in. Try not to name it, which means try not to control it. Just be a part of that flow. There's that moment in, in, in Genesis where God lets Adam name all the animals in the, in the garden. In Hebrew thought, to name something was to show dominion over it. That's why parents got to name their children. That's why Adam got to name the animals to show human dominion over the animals, control over the animals. That's why Hebrews don't allow you to name God and to say the name of God. That would show dominion or control. Can we let ourselves be a little bit out of control? Would that be okay for just a moment? Just take the walk and see what's there. Immerse yourself in it, but don't think about it. Don't name it. Just be there. What a difference would that make of your experience? How would that work? Immerse in nature. How do we immerse in our culture? That's going to be a lot more difficult. Now we're talking about man-made stuff. Man-made stuff is rowdy. Man-made stuff is noisy, complicated, messy, right? It's going to be completely different than the serenity and the beauty that we see in nature. How are we going to immerse ourselves in man-made situations, in social groupings? Think about your workplace. Can you focus just on the task at hand? 
And stop thinking for a moment about the office politics. Stop thinking about what so-and-so said to this and that and, and how you were snubbed or missed you know, and, and not noticed. Can you just be and focus on the task at hand, on your coworkers, on your customers, on your boss? Can the main thought in your head be, how can I leave this person better than I found him or her? Whoever it is, if it's my customer, my boss, my coworker, or if it's just the task on the, in hand. Can I continue to see purpose? Can I continue to see contribution in my job, even when it seems like I'm just a cog in a bigger machine? Can I see my place in this larger human machine and see how it all works together, see how my part functions and needs to function and contributes to the whole, even though in and of itself it seems insignificant and seems beneath me, and I wish that I could get out of this job, and all the things that run through our head, but at the moment that we're doing it, that we have submitted to get this paycheck for this particular task, can we see it as contributing, at least to the customer's well-being at this moment, at least to my co-workers' well-being at this moment? Can I retain a sense of meaning, a sense of significance, because I am also working the task within the task, not just the thing I'm getting paid for. But when I bring presence with awareness and focus to the task I'm getting paid for, I'm learning something that is completely interior. That's the task within the task, and it makes everything significant. Every time Marion gets home from work now, I, we, we always kind of debrief her day. How's the day going? And she tells me what's going on. There are times that she said one customer changed her entire day. She'll talk about a, an old man who came through and just her interaction with him and the smile and the sense of gratitude and the way that they were able to talk. That's everything. It was a good day. Even if her boss snubbed her or even if uh, you can fill in the blanks there. Can we be that present at that moment to change everything? Social groups. And social media, oh my gosh, don't even get me started. You know, can we resist the temptation? Can we resist the need to try to establish our significance artificially into our social groups? I mean, that is exhausting if you're always thinking about how you're going to try to get this and that accomplished. And in social media, it's even worse. It's even harder because you don't have a physical face in front of us. Wouldn't you think that we would treat people the same way, whether we're in regular groups or social media, but we don't? There's something about that interface between us and the other, I guess. We can't see a person through it anymore. And we treat them so much worse. I mean, the level of conversation on social media is horrible. But can we resist the need to want to move into that superior position, right? When you think about it, modern culture is dehumanizing. Modern culture is depersonalizing. Ever since the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century, when Henry Ford first came up with the assembly line, think about it. We don't see tasks and projects through from beginning to end anymore. We just do little pieces of them. You're on, a, you're on an assembly line and you turn this screw, and that's what you do all day long. I mean, that does something to the psyche. It used to be that people planted and they saw something through all the way, or they built something in their workshops and they saw something all the way through, and there was a sense of meaning and purpose and completion in that work. Some of you still do projects like that. That's great. But for the majority, it's so dehumanizing. 
And so we no longer see these, the significance in what we do. And we're looking for ways to be significant. And now all I have to do is I push this button, I click this thing right here, and that last thought out of my head is now across the globe. Wow, there's power, there's significance. If I can get something to go viral, if I can get enough likes, you know, this is in my mind right now. I just watched that social dilemma um, thing. So it's just like, oh, wow. You know, but it's true. We get the dopamine hits. We get the sense of significance just from the things that we do. Can we resist that? Can we treat people in social media the same way that we would if they were in front of us, hopefully, where we just want to leave them better than we found them? What about our politics? You know, in the fight to make a better world, or to save the world, depending on, on what you think the state of the world is, what does it profit if we lose our humanity? Look what Jesus says here at Mark 8. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul. What's Jesus doing here? He's setting priorities for us. He's still talking about the task within the task. I mean, some of our political goals and causes are virtuous, and the need is so great, and we see that. But at what cost? If we, in that zeal to get this cause, get this change to occur in the macro end up hating the person who is right in front of us because they're on the other side of an artificial line, then we've lost the battle before we even begin. We have to look at this in a different way. And Jesus always did this. Look at Matthew 22 at verse 17. Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? So this is a group that are trapping Jesus. Either way he answers, he is toast, right, with somebody. But Jesus perceives their malice, and he says, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. So he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. Jesus is saying, Do what you must to live in the culture as it is. Do what you need to do. But do it in such a way that you never lose sight of the unseen presence of your Father in the midst of all of it. He brings us right back to God. Look, I'm not going to answer your question. Do what you need to do as you see fit. Fight whatever cause you need to fight, but never lose sight that God is in the midst of all of this because the moment you do, you're a part of the problem and not the solution. The moment you do, you will not be able to do what love dictates in any given moment because your awareness is gone, your presence is gone. Hang on to that presence. Hang on. Fight the interior revolution first. This is a theme that we've been coming back to week after week. Fight the interior revolution first before you go out and fight the exterior one because if you haven't gone through that interior process, you won't be present, you won't be aware, you won't be focused, and you will not be in love enough to do anything but more harm 
in the marketplace than you would otherwise. In our politics, in the very good causes that we are involved in, we need to hang on to that sense that God is still in the midst or we will never leave the battlefield. There'll never be a time when we're not fighting. A friend of mine wrote to say that he always feels this elephant, this weight on his chest, that stress, you know? Cortisol levels are shooting through his body because there's always that stress that he feels. You know, I know that stress. My 20s that I was talking about that I've got no good memories is because the cortisol was all I was feeling, just that weight on my chest and that constant stress and anxiety of not even knowing what it was. I had to get someplace else, wherever that was. This is not a good place. That must be a better place. I mean, that constant thing that goes along and keeps you on the hamster wheel. And there's so many of us. We're in fight or flight with no opponent. There's nobody there. <laughs> there's no clear and present danger. What is it that's triggering us to feel that the way that we do, constantly on that battlefield? We're all Don Quixote, you know, jousting with windmills, imagining giants out there. But where are they really? Where is the stress? Where is that weight coming from? Analyze your moments. Think about your moments. From this one to the one that you had coming here, you know, our moments are good, generally. Yes, there are a few that are traumatic. There are a few that are hurtful. But they're few and far between. Most of the moments that we would think of as boring or insignificant, hey, they're just fine. We're fed. Air temperature's good right? What's wrong with the moment? Nothing. Why do we feel this stress in a moment that is basically okay? Because our head is not where our feet are. Because we're not present and aware to what's around us. We are importing something that doesn't exist. Studies have shown that at least half the time we as a people are not thinking about the thing that we're actually doing. Our mind has wandered away from the thing that we're actually doing. And I want you to think about that. Is that an accurate number for you? Most of the people I talk to, it's 80 to 90%. Some, of them, some people will tell me it's 99% of the time they are thinking about something other than what they're actually doing, which means they are not present. Then think about the content of all those thoughts that you are thinking about when you're not thinking about what you're actually doing and who you're actually with. Overwhelmingly, it's negative, right? Because that's what we obsess over is the negative things. So if 90% of the time you're not thinking about what you're doing and 90% of that content is negative, do you wonder why the elephant is still on your chest even when it's a perfectly fine moment? We're doing this to ourselves. And we need to get past it. And the only way we do it is with presence. The freedom Jesus is talking about, basically, is the freedom to take that weight off your chest. To let yourself be just fine in the moment as it presents. Completely present and aware of and focused on the person who is right in front of you. So that you are free to deliver what love requires at that moment and nothing else. Presence is a twofer, right? We get two things for the price of one. When we are present, it's the best you're ever going to feel. Simply focused on what's right in front of you and dealing only with that. And you're also going to leave the person you're with better than you found him or her. Nine times out of ten. But there's a caveat. 
If you're doing your presence in order to feel better, then you're not present anymore. It has to be presence without thought of outcome. It's just that immersion that we've been talking about in God, in each other, in nature, and in our culture to be completely present at that time. The nature of presence is to be lost in the presence. Can we get lost in it? And this is exactly what Jesus says over and over again. If you want to find your life, you're going to have to lose it. If you want to save your life, you need to lose it. Sometimes there's an image in Scripture that just takes your breath away. At least it takes my breath away with its perfect simplicity and also its profound depth. In Genesis, when the Scriptures talk about Adam and Eve not knowing that they were naked, is the most beautifully simple and profound way to get across the sense of presence without awareness before the awareness sets in, you know. And once we eat from the tree, the awareness comes in of our nakedness, of our vulnerability, and of our fear that comes from our vulnerability. We can realize all that, which we didn't before. It's like the little kid running around, naked, clothed, doesn't matter. You know, they're enjoying the moment as it is. But once we have this awareness, now we fear our vulnerability. Now we fear our nakedness. And everything changes. That fear is what kills our freedom as we then need to search for some sort of security. That's the weight on the chest, right? Presence gives us our freedom back. The freedom that Jesus is here to give us. It's a return to the garden, to the oneness in the moment. But it's a voluntary return this time. Jesus is leading us to freedom. Presence is the way to that freedom. We just have to practice it every single day until we get good enough at it that it's actually working in our lives, immersing in God, in each other, in nature, in our culture, and in every single aspect of our lives. When we get better at that, and hit that magic 51% mark where we are now characterized by something different, the weight comes off. Yes, we still take a few trips to the dark side, but we know how to come back home again. And at that point, the scale can go logarithmic, exponential, and take us to places we never imagined. This is what Jesus keeps trying to get across to us. There is an experience that you can't even imagine in kingdom right here and now. If you can follow me, if you can let go of what needs to let be let go of and move into this place of connection, and that's what he wants for every one of us. Presence is the way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for showing us the way, for always being present to us, doing everything first, that you are encouraging us to do. Thank you for that model. Thank you for the grace to find our own way so that when we do, it is our way. It's your way too, but it's ours because we had to find it. It didn't just come to us fully wrapped. So along that way of finding you, Lord, in this most deep and profound way, let us be aware that you are with us every step, that you never leave or forsake us, even when we feel that that's exactly what has happened. 
that when we're alone and we can imagine all sorts of things in our minds and we want to quit and it just doesn't seem worth it anymore, and what's the point? That we can see that significance still shining through. We can still see the beauty of your creation right there outside our windows and know that we know that it matters. That showing up matters. And that you are always in the center of everything that seems to be significant. And that matters. So, Father, thank you for the guidance. Thank you for everything that you've given us, the tools along the way. And thank you for each other. And never let us forget, we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's all stand.